You're listening to Conversations on Strategy. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and are not necessarily those of the Department of the Army, the U.S. Army War College, or any other agency of the U.S. government. Joining me today are Dr. C. Anthony Pfaff and Colonel Christopher J. Lawrence, co-authors of Trusting AI, Integrating Artificial Intelligence into the Army's Professional Expert Knowledge, with Bree Washburn and Brett Carey. Pfaff, a retired U.S. Army colonel, is the Research Professor for Strategy, the Military Profession, and Ethics at the U.S. Army War College Strategic Studies Institute and a Senior Non-Resident Fellow at the Atlantic Council. Colonel Christopher J. Lawrence is the Chief Autonomous Systems Engineer at the U.S. Army Artificial Intelligence Integration Center. Your monograph notes that AI literacy is critical to future military readiness. Give us your working definition of AI literacy, please. AI literacy is more aimed at our human operators, and that means commanders, staff, as well as, you know, the operators themselves, able to employ these systems in a way that not only we can optimize the advantage these systems promise, but also be accountable for their output. That requires knowing things about how data is properly curated. It'll include knowing things about how algorithms work. But of course, not everyone can become an AI engineer. So we have to kind of figure out at whatever level, given whatever task you have, what do you need to know for these kinds of operations to be intelligible? I think a big part of it is going to be also educating the workforce. And that goes all the way from senior leaders down to the users of the systems. And so a big critical part of it is understanding how best AI-enabled systems can fit in, the appropriate roles that they can play, and how best they can team or augment soldiers as they complete their task. And so with that, that's going to take senior leader education coupled with different levels of technical expertise within the force, especially when it comes to employing and maintaining these types of systems, as well as down to the user that's going to have to provide some level of feedback to the system as it's being employed. Tell me about some of the challenges of integrating AI and data technologies. What we try to do is sort of look at it from a professional perspective. And from that perspective, I'll talk maybe a little bit more later, but you know, in many ways, there are lots of aspects of the challenge that aren't really that different. We brought on tanks, airplanes, and submarines that all required new knowledge that not only led to changes in how we fight wars and the character of wars, but corresponding changes to doctrine and organizational culture, which we're seeing with AI. We've even seen some of the issues that AI brings up before when we introduce automated technology, which in reducing the cognitive load on operators introduces concerns like accountability gaps and automation biases that arise because humans are just trusting the machine or don't understand how the machine is working or how to do the process manually. And as a result, they're not able to assess its output. The paradigm example of that, of course, is Vincenzo's where you had an automated system, even though there was plenty of information that it was giving that should have caused a human operator not to permit shooting down, it ended up being a civilian airliner. So we've dealt with that in the past. AI kind of puts that on steroids. Two of the challenges I think that are unique to AI, with data-driven systems, they actually can change in capabilities as you use them. For instance, a system that starts off able to identify perhaps a few high-value targets, over time, as it collects more data, gets more questions. And as humans see patterns or as the machine identifies patterns, then humans ask the machine to test it. You're able to start discerning properties of organizations, both friendly and enemy, you wouldn't have seen before. And that allows for greater prediction. What that means is that the same system used in different places with different people with different tasks are going to be different systems and have different capabilities over time. The other thing that I think is happening 
is the way it's changing how we're able to view the battlefield. Rather than a cycle of Intel driving ops, driving Intel, and so on, with the right kind of sensors in place, getting us the right kind of data, we're able to get more of a real-time picture. The Intel side can make assessments based on friendly situations, and the friendly can make targeting decisions and assessments about their own situation based on Intel. So that's coming together in ways that are also pretty interesting, and I don't think we've fully wrestled with yet. Yeah, just to echo a couple of things that Dr. Fav has alluded to here is that, you know, overarching, I think a challenge is gaining trust in the system. And trust is really earned, and that's earned through use is one aspect. But you've got to walk in and being informed, and that's where the data literacy and the AI literacy piece comes in. And as Dr. Fav mentioned, is that these data-driven systems, generally speaking, will perform based on the type of data that they've been trained against in those types of scenarios in which that data was collected. And so one of the big challenge areas is adaptation over time, but they are teachable, so to speak. So as you collect and curate new data examples, you can better inform the systems of how they should adapt over time. And that's going to be really key to gaining trust. And that's where the users and the commanders of these systems need to understand some of the limitations of the platforms, their strengths, and understanding also how to retrain or reteach the systems over time using new data so that they can more quickly adapt. But there's definitely some technical barriers to gaining trust. They certainly can be overcome with their proper approach. What else should we consider then when it comes to developing trustworthy AI? We've kind of taken this from the professional perspective. And so we're starting with an understanding of professions that a profession entails specialized knowledge that's in service to some social good that allows professionals to exercise autonomy over specific jurisdictions. Example, of course, would be doctors in the medical profession. They have specialized knowledge. They're certified in it by other doctors. They're able to make medical decisions without non-professionals being able to override those. So the military is the same thing, where we have a particular expertise. And then the question is, how does introduction of AI affect what counts as expert knowledge? Because that is the core functional imperative of the profession that is able to provide that service. In that regard, you're going to look at the system. We need to be able to know as professionals if the system is effective. It also is predictable and understandable. I am able to replicate results and understand the ones that I get. We also have to trust a professional. That means a professional has to be certified. And the big question is, as Chris alluded to, is in what? But not just certified in the knowledge, but also responsible norms and accountable. The reason for that is clients rely on professionals because they don't have this knowledge themselves. Generally speaking, the client's not in a position to judge whether or not that diagnosis, for example, is good or not. Uh, they can go find another opinion, but they're going out to go seek another professional. So clients not only need to trust that the expert knows what they're doing, but there's an ethics that governs them and that they are accountable. Finally, to trust the profession as an institution that it actually has what's required to conduct the right kinds of certification, as well as the institutions required to hold professionals accountable. So that's the big overarching framework in which we're trying to take up the differences and challenges that AI provides. Like I mentioned earlier, I think it's about also getting the soldiers and commanders involved early during the development process and gaining that valuable feedback. So it's kind of an incremental rollout potentially of AI-enabled systems is one aspect or way of looking at it. And so that way you can start to gauge and get a better appreciation and understanding of the strengths of AI and how best it can team 
with commanders and soldiers as they employ the systems. And that teaming can be adaptive. And I think it's really important for commanders and soldiers to feel like they can have some level of control of how best to employ AI-enabled systems and some degree of mechanism, let's say how much they're willing to trust at a given moment or instance for the AI system to perform a particular function based on the conditions. As we know, as military leaders, the environment can be very dynamic and conditions change. If you look at the scale of operations from a counterinsurgency to a large scale combat operations, you know, those are different ends of a spectrum here of types of conflicts that might be potentially faced by our commanders and our soldiers on the ground with AI enabled systems. And so they need to adapt and have some level of control and different trust over the system based on understanding that system, its limitations, its strengths and so on. You touched on barriers just a moment ago. Can you expand a little bit more on that piece of it? Oftentimes, when you look at it from a perspective of machine learning applications, these are algorithms where the system is able to ingest data examples. So basically, historical examples of conditions of of past events. And so just to make this a little bit more tangible, think of an object recognition algorithm that can look at imagery and that maybe it's geospatial imagery for satellites that have taken an aerial photo of the ground plane. And then you could train it to look for certain objects like airplanes. Well, over time, the AI learns to look for these based on the features of these examples within past imagery. With that, sometimes if you take that type of example data and the conditions of the environment change, maybe it's the backdrop or maybe it's a different airstrip or a different type of airplane or something changes, then performance can degrade to some degree. And this goes back to adaptability. How do these algorithms best adapt? This goes back to the teaming aspect of having users working with the AI, recognizing when that performance is starting to degrade to some degree, kind of through a checks and balances type of system. And then you give feedback by curating new examples and having the system adapt. I think giving the soldiers, commanders, for instance, the old analogy of a baseball card with performance statistics of a particular player, well, you would have a baseball card for a particular AI-enabled system, giving you the types of training statistics, for example, what kind of scenario was this system trained for, what kind of data examples, how many data examples, and so on. And that would give commanders and operators a better sense, these strengths and limitations of the systems where and under what conditions has it been tested and evaluated. And therefore, when it's employed in a condition that doesn't necessarily meet those kinds of conditions, then that's an early cue to be more cautious, to take a more aggressive teaming stance with the system and checking more rigorously, obviously, what the AI is potentially predicting or recommending to the soldiers and operators. That's one example I think you got to have the context where most instances, depending on the type of AI application, if you will, really drives how much control or task effort you're going to give to the AI system. In some instances, as we see out in the commercial sector today, there's a high degree of autonomy given to some AI systems that are recommending, for instance, what you maybe want to purchase or what movie you should shop for and so on. But what's the risk of employing that type of system or if that system makes a mistake? And I think that's really important is the context here 
and then having the right precautions and the right level of teaming in place when you're going into those more risky types of situations. And I think another final point of the barriers to help overcome them is, again, going back to this notion of giving commanders and soldiers some degree of control over the system. A good analogy is like a rheostat knob. Based on the conditions on the ground, based on their past use of the system and their understanding, they start to gain an understanding of the strengths and limitations of the system. And then based on the conditions can really dial up or dial down the degree of autonomy that they're willing to grant the system. And I think this is another way of overcoming barriers to, let's say, highly restricting the use of AI-enabled systems, especially when they're recognizing targets or threats and as part of the targeting cycle. And that's one of the lenses that we looked at in this particular study. When we're looking at expert knowledge, we break it into four components. The technical part, which we've covered. But we also look at, to have that profession, professionals have to engage in human development, which means recruiting the right kinds of people, training and educating the right kinds of ways, and then develop them over a career to be leaders in the field. And we've already talked about the importance of having norms that ensure the trust of the client. And there's the political, which stresses mostly how the professions maintain legitimacy and compete for jurisdiction with other professions, all issues that AI brings up. So those introduce a number of other kinds of concerns that you have to be able to take into account for any of the kinds of things that Chris talked about for us to be able to do that. So I would say growing the institution along those four avenues that I talked about represents a set of barriers that need to be overcome. Let's talk about ethics and politics in relation to AI and the military. What do we need to consider here? It's about the trust of the client, but that needs to be amplified a little bit. What's the client trusting us to do? Not only use this knowledge on their behalf, but also in a way that reflects their values. That means systems that conform to the law of armed conflict, systems that enable humane and humanitarian decision making, even in high intensity combat. The big concerns there, the issue of accountability and automation bias. Accountability arises because there's only so much you're going to be able to understand about the system as a whole. And when we're talking about the system, it's not just the data and the algorithms. It's the whole thing from sensors to operators. So it'll always be a little bit of a black box. You don't understand what's going on. Or if you get rushed, more does come with a sense of urgency. You're going to be tempted to go with the results the machine produces. Our recommendation is to create some kind of interface. We use the idea of fuzzy logic that allows the system and the humans who interact with it to identify specific targets in multiple sets. The idea was, given any particular risk tolerance the commander has, because machines, when they produce these outputs, they assign a probability to it. So, for example, if it identifies a tank, it'll say something to the effect of 80% tank. So if I have a high risk tolerance for potential collateral harms, risk emission, or whatever, and I have a very high confidence that the target I'm about to shoot is legitimate, I can let the machine do more of the work. And with the fuzzy logic controller, you can use that to determine where in the system humans need to intervene when that risk tolerance changes or that confidence changes. And this addresses accountability because it specifies what commanders, staffs, and operators are accountable for, getting the risk assessment right, as well as ensuring that the data is properly curated and the algorithm's trained. It helps with automation bias because the machine's telling you what level of confidence it has. So it's giving you prompts to recheck it should there be any kinds of doubts. And one way you can enhance that that we talked about in the monograph is in addition to looking for things that you want to shoot, also look for things you don't want to shoot. That'll be a better picture of the environment. Overall, reduce the kind of risk of using these systems. Now, when it comes to politics, you've got a couple of issues here. One is at the level of civil relations, and Peter Singer brought this up 10 years ago when talking about drones. His concern was that drone operation would be better done by private sector contractors. 
as we rely more on drones, what it came to mean in applying military force would largely be taken over by contractors. And thus, expert knowledge leaves the profession and goes somewhere else. And that's going to undermine the credibility and the legitimacy of the profession with political implications. That didn't exactly happen because military operators always retained the ability to do this. The only ones who were authorized to use these systems with lethal force. There were some contractors augmenting them, but with AI right now, as we sort through what the private sector government roles and expertise is going to be, we have a situation where you could end up, one strategy of doing this is that the military expert knowledge doesn't change. All the data science algorithms are going on on the other side of an interface where the interface just presents information that the military you know, operator needs to know, and he responds to that information without really completely understanding how it got there in the first place. I think that's a concern because that is when expertise migrates outside the profession. It also puts the operators, commanders, and staffs in a position where, A, they will not necessarily be able to assess the results well without some level of understanding. They also will be able to optimize the system as its capabilities develop over time. We want to be careful about that because in the end, the big thing in this issue is expectation management. Because these are risk-reducing technologies, because they're more precise, they lower risk to friendly soldiers as well as civilians and so on. So we want to make sure that we are able to set the right kinds of expectations, which will be a thing senior militaries will have to do regarding the effectiveness of the technology so civilian leaders don't over-rely on it and the public doesn't become frustrated by lack of results when it doesn't quite work out. Because a military that can't deliver results but also imposes any risk to soldiers and non-combatants alike is not one that's probably going to be trusted. Regarding ethics and politics in relations to AI and the military, I think it's really important, obviously, throughout the development cycle of an AI system that you're taking these types of considerations and early and obviously often. So I know one guiding principle that we have here is that if you break down an AI system across a stack all the way from the hardware to the data to the model and then to deployment in the application, really ethics wraps all of that. So it's really important that the guiding principles already set forth through various documents from DOD and the Army regarding responsible AI and and employment that that is followed and adhered to. Now, in terms of what we looked at from the paper from the political lens, it's an interesting dynamic when you start looking at the interaction between the employment of these systems and really from the sense of, let's say, of urgency of least leveraging this technology from either a bottom up or a top down type of fashion. So what I mean by that is from a research and development perspective, you know, there's an S&T or science and technology base that really leads the armies and really DOD if you look outside from a joint perspective, the development of new systems. But yet, as you know, the commercial sector is leveraging AI now, today. And sometimes there's a sense of urgency. It's like, hey, it's mature enough in these types of aspects. Let's go ahead and start leveraging it. And so a more deliberate approach would be this traditional rollout through the S&T environment where it goes through rigorous test and evaluation processes and then eventually becomes a program record and then deployed and fielded. Whereas it doesn't necessarily necessarily prohibit a unit right now that obviously says, hey, I can take this commercial off-the-shelf AI system and start leveraging it and go ahead and get some early experience. So I think there's this interesting aspect between the traditional program record acquisition effort versus this kind of bottom-up unit-level experimentation and how those are blending together. And it also brings up the role, I think, of soldiers and, let's say, contractors play in terms of developing 
and eventually deploying and employing AI-enabled systems. You know, inherently, AI-enabled systems are complex. And so who has the requisite skills to sustain, update, and adapt these systems over time? Is it the contractor or should it be the soldiers? And where does that take place? We looked at different aspects of this in the study, and there's probably a combination of a hybrid. But one part of the study is we talked about the workforce development program and how important that is because in tactical field environments, you're not necessarily always going to be able to have contractors out present in these field sites, nor are you going to have always the luxury of high bandwidth communications out to the tactical edge where these AI-enabled systems are being employed. Because of that, you're going to have to have the ability to have that technical knowledge of updating and adapting AI-enabled systems with the soldiers. That's one thing we definitely emphasized as part of the study, uh, those kinds of relationships. Would you like to share any final thoughts before we go? One thing I would just like to reemphasize again is this ability that we can overcome some of these technical barriers that we discussed throughout the paper, but we can do so deliberately, obviously, and responsibly. Part of that is we think, and this is what one of our big findings from our study is, that from taking an adaptive teaming approach. We know that AI inherently, and especially in a targeting cycle application, is an augmentation tool. It's going to be paired with soldiers. It's not going to be just running autonomously by itself. What does that teaming look like? It goes back to this notion of giving control down to the commander level. And that's where that trust is going to start to come in, where if the commander on the ground knows that he can change the system behavior or change that teaming aspect that is taking place and the level of teaming, that inherently is going to grow the amount of trust that he or she has in the system during its application. We briefly talked a little bit about that, but I just want to echo or reinforce that. And it's this concept of an explainable fuzzy logic controller. And the big two inputs to that controller are what is the risk tolerance of the commander based on the conditions of the ground, whether it's counterinsurgency or large-scale combat operations, versus what the AI system is telling them. Generally speaking, in most predictive applications, the AI has some degree of confidence score associated with its prediction or recommendation. And so leverage that and leverage the combination of those. And that should give an indication of how much trust or how much teaming, in other words, you know, for a given function or role should take place with this AI augmentation and between the soldier and the actual AI augmentation tool that's taking place. This can be broken down, obviously, in stages just like the targeting cycle is. And our targeting cycle and joint doctrine is for dynamic targeting as F2T2EA, find, fix, track, target, engage, and assess. And each one of those, obviously more some than others, is where AI can play a constructive role. We can employ it in a role where we're doing so responsibly and it's providing an advantage, in some instances, augmenting the soldiers in such a way that really exceeds the performance a human alone could do. And that deals with speed, for example, or finding those really hidden types of targets, these kinds of things that would be even difficult for a human to do alone. Taking that adaptive teaming lens is going to be really important moving forward. When it comes to employing AI, particularly for military purposes, there's a concern that the sense of urgency that comes with combat operations will overwhelm the human ability to control the machine. We'll always want to rely on the speed. And like Chris said, you don't get the best performance out of the machine that way. 
it really is all about teaming. None of the barriers that we talked about, none of the challenges we talked about are even remotely insurmountable. But these are the kinds of things you have to pay attention to. There is a learning curve. And to engage in strategies that minimize the amount of adaptation members of the military are going to have to perform, I think it will be a mistake in the long term, even if we get short-term results. Listeners, you can learn more about this if you want to really dig into the details here. You can download the monograph at press.armywarcollege.edu slash monographs slash 959. Dr. Pfaff, Colonel Lawrence, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Stephanie. It was great to be here. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, you can find us on any major podcast platform. 